0: Welcome to the National Secular Society podcast, and part two in our series Exploring Religious Freedom. I'm Anna Anastolichton, Head of Education at the NSS. In this series, I'm speaking to a variety of experts and activists to get their professional views and personal insights. What does religious freedom mean? How is it under threat? What are its limits? And how might it be abused? In this episode, I was joined by Rachel Lasser, CEO of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, and the keynote speaker at our major upcoming conference, Secularism 2019, Reclaiming Religious Freedom. Let's get straight into the interview, and I'll be back at the end with a few remarks. Enjoy. So, Rachel, welcome to the NSS Podcast. Great to be here. Would you like to start by introducing yourself to the audience and maybe telling us how you became an activist for religious freedom? I would love to.
1: So my name is Rachel Lazar. Uh, I'm a mom of three teenagers, and I'm actually married to a Brit, um, a, a, a British Jew uh, who who came over to America when he was about seven. Um, I am the first woman and non-Christian president of Americans United for Separation of Church and State, which is my 71-year-old nonprofit here based in Washington, D.C., but we're a national organization. Um, And I feel like I'm a very natural fit for the separation of religion and government because I'm a religious minority. Um, And so for me, the separation of religion and government brings me a feeling of personal security in America. It's enabled me to raise my kids, sending them to public school without worrying that they'd be taught a religion that isn't ours. Um, It's, it actually enabled my relatives to flee religious persecution um, and to rebuild their lives here in America and even thrive. So for me, I have a lot of gratitude towards this, foundational principle that we have here in America. That's of course captured in the religion clauses of our First Amendment of our Constitution.
0: Well thanks for that. And uh what's really nice there is you spoke about the personal importance of religion of religious freedom to you there. So it's not we weren't we're not immediately going down into you know, a theoretical philosophical discussion. Um, we're very excited to have you as our keynote speaker for secularism 2019. And I'm sure we'll cover it in more detail then, but I wonder if you could just expand on uh, on it for us of what does religious freedom mean to you?
1: Absolutely, and I just wanna note that I love the fact that you recognize that I made it personal instead of theoretical, because as a newcomer to this organization, I've been here a little less than a year and a new leader in this space, though I've worked on these issues for many years. I feel that one of our deficits as good advocates for separation of religion and government and freedom of conscience for all has been the lack of personalizing it, the lack of showing the human faces and what's at stake rather than only speaking in abstract legal or philosophical terms. So I just wanted to note that I love that you acknowledge the importance of making this issue personal. I completely agree. Um, You asked me to speak to the definition of religious freedom, um, and and I, I have one that I tend to use, which is that religious freedom means that we all have the freedom of conscience to be religious, not to be religious at all, to practice whatever religion we want in whatever way we want, to change our belief system over the course of our lifetime, or even to concoct our own spiritual brew. And, and I would add that to me, religious freedom is part of America's commitment to diversity. you know, And in this case, it's our embrace of the thousands of religions that are practiced across our shores. And we recently saw this uh, play out in the uh, in the national election for Congress. We saw an unprecedented number of religious minorities, you know, for the first time, two Muslim women, uh, Native American women, um, you know, folks that really wouldn't have been able to be elected in this country if it weren't for religious freedom and our commitment to it. I will just add one more thing, Alster, if I'm if I may, which is whenever I talk about what religious freedom is, I think it's really important to also talk about what it's not. To me, religious freedom, and it's not just to me, <laughs> I will say this more broadly, Religious freedom does not mean the right to impose your religion on others because if you're doing that, then you're taking away your and my religious freedom. If you're imposing your religious freedom on me by imposing your religion on me, you're taking away my ability to believe what I want. Similarly, religious freedom is not in the the Supreme Court here in the United States has even found this, religious freedom is not the right to hurt other people or to cause harm to other people. That's not what this concept is about. And in fact, one of our federal laws on religious freedom is called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And when it was passed in the early 1990s, it it bound together a really diverse and eclectic group across political divides, across religious divides, and these different communities, religious, secular, all really came together to say religious freedom means protections for vulnerable populations so that they can believe what they want to or not believe. Religious freedom is a shield that ensures that folks, particularly those who've been marginalized in their beliefs, are able to believe what they want. What religious freedom is not, and I'll repeat this, is a sword that should be weaponized to hurt other people or discriminate against other people.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, at the NSS, we talk about religious freedom versus religious privilege. And I noticed that this metaphor of religious freedom as a shield and not a sword is very um, central to Americans United's rhetoric. That's right. I mean, another way to look at it is about sort of, you know, the, ma- the right to manifest your religion, not actually being absolute.
1: Right. Right. The recognition that in order to have true religious freedom or true freedom of conscience, that I cannot impose my religion. Right. I have to I have to recognize that I am one of many. Right. That used to be our our national motto in this country e pluribus unum, from many one. Unfortunately, in the 1950s around McCarthyism and a lot of the, quote, red fear and fear of socialism and communism, and uh, we decided as a country to make, in God we trust, the national motto. So it was a a political backlash, really, to sort of a fear-driven moment, and a very, um conservative backlash in the sense uh, in the sense of what you're saying which is it even that national motto gave privilege to believers and frankly as a jewish person even though we too have a god if there's an in god we trust sign posted on a federal building or in a public school i never feel that that's referencing my god right so that would be an instance of pure Religious privilege in this country
0: mm. I, I mean take it the example of, of the plaques on the on the walls you know the, in, in public buildings in God we trust. If I'm a member of the privileged majority, I don't necessarily see the problem with that, and I might feel that that is just an example of religious freedom or religious tolerance if you're coming to it from a position that you're not part of that privileged majority, how do you communicate that, It what your experience of that is? Yes.
1: Yes. You know, there are such strong parallels to being privileged and disadvantaged with regard to race, which is an issue that America is also really facing and dealing with even more at the forefront right now. So let me make an analogy when you're white In America, and I would suspect in the United Kingdom as well, you are the baseline. And so when you walk into hotel rooms and there is a certain type of shampoo that's available and it's for white people's hair, you don't notice. When you go to the store and buy band aids and they're colored for white people's skin to be quote neutral, you don't even notice. But if you're a person of color or a a black or brown person, you notice these things right away. And that's because when we're in the minority instead of in the majority is when we're most likely to feel our difference. And when we're in the majority, as opposed to being in the minority, when we have the privilege of being in the majority, we are so likely to be oblivious. And often, not always, often it's harmless. And that's why people who have privilege can feel very attacked by having it pointed out to them why they're missing what it's like to be a person who's in the minority. So this is true when it comes to religious privilege as well. So you know, I'll come back to the hotel room. You know, if in fact, I'll, let me tell you this: I was recently at a synagogue speaking with mostly white Jews, as as are most synagogues in America. And I was talking about white privilege and asking this group to give me examples of, of white privilege. And it was harder, although they were able to do it. And the minute I said, let's talk about Christian privilege now to this group of Jews. Now, can you give me some examples? Well, I couldn't shut them up. You know, it was like the Bible in hotel rooms and the national holidays and, you know, it went on and on and on. They had no problem. And that's because you know, in that case, they aren't part of the privileged group.
0: There, There is a perception held by many, and, and not by any means just people in the religious majority or in the United Kingdom's case, the religious minority, uh, that secularism or the separation of church and state is in some way anti-religious or anti-democratic. Why do you think that perception is there?
1: Right, that's a... Fantastic question. I actually think it relates to what we were just talking about, and perhaps that's why it sprung to your mind, which is when you are in the privileged, let's say in America, in the Christian privilege group, and you're having pointed out to you that you have to share, you know, that this isn't a Christian country, and therefore there may be certain things that you're not even aware of, ways that you're imposing your religion on others, or being oblivious to the fact that other people believe different things, it feels like an attack on your religion, rather than just the person who's part of the religious minority pointing out that they're being left behind. And the two are different. You know, it's not necessarily an attack. It's it's a constructive um, illumination. Of uh, a situation that being part of the religious majority one might not see. But it's the same it plays out the same way with racism if uh, an African American here points out to a white person ways in which they're uh, missing what the black or brown experience may be like, or even worse, you know, saying what we call a microaggression, right which we can experience in the religious context as well. It's very common for the white person to attack the black or brown person and accuse them of, quote, reverse racism, right? Whereas they're just pointing out their experience and how they're being uh, ignored or not seen. It's very similar with being non-Christian, you know, in this country. When you point that out, you're very often accused of being
0: anti-Christian
1: or anti-religious. So I think that's one explanation for how that that label gets attached to our movement.
0: I, th- I think one of the clearest examples I see of this is uh, um, I work on education at the NSS, and when we talk about prayer in school, and you know why we think that you know having school mandated prayer is a bit of the problem. And someone says, "Well, I like it," and oh, you know, you can withdraw yourself from school prayers, but the person saying that is neither the person who would be the person in the position of, you know, being the odd one out of withdrawing themselves from assembly, you know, and going through all of that in order to not partake in uh, a religious ritual. I'm sh- I mean, I'm sure if we had uh, atheist devotions in every assembly, they mm-hmm. would <laughs> they would very much see the, 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 the discrimination in that.
1: That's right. And that's why it's a very dangerous game to play. But some people, some some. Christian friends say, you know, you should say back to these Christians that are not seeing their privilege. You should say, let's say you move to a majority Muslim area and the public school is forcing Muslim prayer on everyone. How would you feel? And I think at the same time as that is uh, illustrative, you know, and may help the the some of these Christians that are resistant, not all are, but some of them understand your point. It's a dangerous game to play here in America because of the level of anti-Muslim bigotry. So, but to your point, I think when, you know, when you sort of point out to those who are resistant what it would be like to be in the minority, they get it a little bit better.
0: Mm. I, I I guess it would be that the fact that there are no bakers refusing to make cakes for Christians.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, but no, they would actually say that's not true. I mean, Jack Phillips, the, the famous baker from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, his brother you know, went to a different baker and tried to get them to put um, sort of an anti-gay slogan on the cake and professed that that was part of his Christian values and that the refusal to do that means Christians are being discriminated against. So there is, there are such allegations here.
0: Yeah, uh, and we, I think we'd see cases like that, and there are certainly analogous cases in the UK, as part of a redefining of religious freedom.
1: Right, exactly. The redefining of religious freedom, the co-opting of the term to mean the right to impose your beliefs on others and the right to discriminate against people, the right to cause harm to people. And if you think about it, That definition of religious freedom is one that actually undermines true religious freedom for all. But today in America, the religious right, really a political movement backed by the Trump Pence administration, is being incredibly successful in their efforts.
0: I think that leads to some people, perhaps, who very much would agree philosophically with you or me, uh, being anti the term religious freedom. I know that you know, we have our conference which is 20, Secrets in 2019 reclaiming religious freedom and then there's been you know, a small but certain backlash to that term. Do you encounter that?
1: What, tell me more about what you mean by the backlash where you Well
0: are. I mean some people are seeing this term religious freedom used to mean a freedom to discriminate.
1: Right, you know, exactly. Some people and, you know, yeah.
0: use your, your shield and sword metaphor. Some people yeah. you know, are saying oh, you know, religious freedom means this sword, so why are you defending it Right. When we think we're saying this shield?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a very compelling reason for a lot of people of faith to come along and support our movement because it really sullies the name of religion to change and co-opt the meaning of religious freedom to the right to discriminate or hurt other people. So those who are deeply religious and not politically religious should be highly concerned about this co-opting of the term and should be joining all of our movement for the separation of religion and government.
0: It seems that Americans United is different to other US organizations that are you know, challenging religious privilege, arguing for the separation of church and state, however you'd like to phrase that, in that you don't come at this from a specifically anti-religious or irreligious point of view. Uh, what do you think the strengths of that approach are?
1: Well, here in America, 70% of the country is Christian. And it's very very hard to win in the court of public opinion if you don't have Christian validators and Christian support. It just is. Now, of course, I believe in all different types of advocacy, and there are, you know, uh, there's death through a thousand cuts, and you know, there's different ways to create those cuts for bad, bad beliefs and bad policies in this country. However, the the strength of Americans United is the number of different sectors that we can pull together under the banner of separating religion and government, because it doesn't take much to connect the dots between separating religion and government and A, being deeply religious, as we just talked about. And in fact, it was deeply religious pastors and clergy that were the primary advocates for separation of church and state being in our constitution, okay? And separation of religion and government obviously appeals to religious minorities and to non-believers. Separation of religion and government is also at the heart of LGBTQ equality, of reproductive freedom for women, of women's equality, and even of immigration rights fighting racism because of the way in this country religious freedom has so often been used even across history to promote regressive social agendas. So in the Masterpiece Cake shot case that we just spoke about, the NAACP, which is one of the premier racial justice groups in our country, submitted a beautiful front of the court brief, that laid out line by line the way religion has been used by the government over time to do things like promote slavery, promote anti-miscegenation laws, so prevent Black people and white people from marrying, oppose civil rights laws, and is still being used today, as we've spoken about, to take away rights from women, to take away rights from people who identify as transgender or lesbian, gay or bisexual. So there is this enormous capacity to come together in this country under the banner of church-state separation. And that's what Americans United is able, is sort of uniquely positioned to do.
0: If we take can imagine imaginary position that we've got two people, and, what, and the first person says, you know, following up the example you used, that to me religious freedom means that we shouldn't be able to discriminate on against people based on our religious views. And the other person says, well to me religious freedom sh- means that we get to pr- we shouldn't be restricted in the practicing of our religion and that means that we should be able to refuse to serve LGBT customers, for example. You've got there two fundamental, philosophically different views of religious freedom. Is there any way that those people can try to persuade someone out of that position or come to a common understanding?
1: I think if we can raise consciousness again successfully and sort of win the battle of reasonableness about the fact that there are limits on the free exercise of religion, that in this country, in our First Amendment, there are two religion clauses Right. And if there just was the need for one, we would have had one. We would have had the right to the free exercise of religion. But instead, we also have a companion clause that talks about not establishing any religion in this country, right? Congress shall make no law establishing religion or preventing the free exercise thereof. So, because these two clauses exist, they must both be important and they actually work together to protect religious freedom for all. And that's, that's the point that we need to make, which is if there were no limits on the free exercise of religion, then too many people in this country would not enjoy the free exercise of religion. Let me put it one other way. That America is this intentionally diverse country Right, We have intentionally welcomed people from all shores, all different religious, ethnic, and other backgrounds to our country. And right now we're at this exciting point in this experience where we have this vibrant diversity. How are we supposed to coexist constructively and peacefully with our neighbors if the free exercise of religion means that in the public square, I can impose my religion on you." It fails. The experiment dies. So in our view, the coexistence of the Establishment Clause with the Free Exercise Clause means there are limits on the free exercise of religion that actually protect free exercise of religion for all.
0: Okay, that's that's a really great way of putting it. So Americans United is very much not organized around being a non-religious organization. Why do you think that efforts to challenge religious privilege are often seen to be so dominated by the non-religious?
1: Because being non-religious in America still makes you very vulnerable. You know, and I think we spoke earlier about the fact that atheists are a very, very small minority of Americans or at least those are who are willing to identify as atheists are a small minority in America and when you're part of a minority you know you're already more likely to notice uh, religious privilege you know both culturally and as the government is enforcing it illegally in this country so you're more likely to notice it but when you're A non believer in this country, unfortunately, there is a special level of distrust reserved for you. And because that's true, you are even, you feel and you are even more vulnerable than certain religious minorities. And therefore, you know, you feel the privilege in a very strong and profound way, and you notice the privilege constantly around you. So I think that's pretty much why you see a lot of the secular groups being so passionate in this space and and leading in this space. But I will tell you that at Americans United for Separation of Church and State, I've noticed that our two biggest, most passionate groups of supporters are very deeply religious people, like the Those who were responsible for putting religious, true religious freedom, into the First Amendment of our Constitution, and very religiously non-religious people, who are very, very strongly fighting for their right to not believe and have equal standing in American society, and it's really fun to get to bring those two groups of people together at Americans United. It's really, it's wonderful work to do that.
0: Before you go, we always like to ask our guests for some recommendations. And so we want to know if there are any books or films exploring religious freedom that you found particularly inspiring or informing, or that are just top of your mind at the moment.
1: Yeah. Well, I will I will list, I, I there are so many. I just pulled a couple off of my shelf and I've been reading them as well. Um, So uh, I would recommend, yes, I'd recommend God in Government by Reverend Barry Lynn who led Americans United for 25 years and wrote a book reflecting on fighting for equality, secularism and freedom of conscience in America. It's a really interesting and, and gripping sort of narrative about his different experiences. Um another book that I think is fascinating and explains a lot of the driver behind the co-opting of religious freedom and what's going on in this debate today in America is written by a friend of mine Robert P Jones and the book is called The End of White Christian America. And it actually talks about the fact that starting in 2014 America ceased to be a majority white Christian so yes we still have 70% Christian but starting in 2014 the majority the less fewer than 50% were white and Christian. So there's a lot of fear what I call white Christian fragility that's alive and well today in America and this book sort of explains the demographics and the change changes that are driving that fear. So I love that book. And then the third book that I'll just sort of put on the table for now is, um, I just ordered it actually, because there was a wonderful article about atheism in America, you know, always here, still so unpopular. I mean, only, you know, recent polls, 3% of Americans identify as quote, atheist. Of course, 9 to 10% identify as not believing in God. So that Tells you what I'm about to to say, which is, you know, when I visit with our members who are who are non believers. You know, one of the stories that I hear repeatedly is, oh, no, you know, I often don't use the word atheist because it's so unpopular. I'd rather say humanist or, you know, I try and couch it in other terms, you know, they say. So anyway, this book, um, which I have not read yet, but which is on my bookshelf to read soon and before I go to your conference, because I'm just interested, is called Seven Types of Atheism by John Gray g-r-a-y.
0: Okay, so uh, we'll, we'll definitely put links to that in the show notes. Great. Rachel, thanks so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to plug before you go?
1: Well, I'd like to say how excited I am to be with you all in May. I'm thrilled at the invitation and thrilled to have the opportunity to come together with folks who are leading on this in in your country and to look for parallels and even learn, um, learn from the differences um, and learn from each other. So thank you so much for this invitation. I'm really looking forward to it. And I'll just plug uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. You can follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Americans United. It's pretty straightforward. And our website is a u for americans united dot o r g so with that i will say uh i will bid you all adieu until may and i'm looking forward
0: okay well thanks so much for your time and we'll see you in london in may thank you well i hope that's put your appetite If you'd like to hear Rachel explore these issues in more detail, then please join us at the conference in central London on the 18th of May. You can find out more and check out the other speakers at secularism.org.uk forward slash 2019. Tickets just £50 and members get an additional 50% discount. I was really interested in how Rachel focused on the role of religious privilege in influencing our view of religious freedom and how it can lead to some forms of discrimination being ignored or even justified as a form of religious freedom themselves. I think the work of American Street United really shows how secularism and the separation of religion from government can be positive forces. There are a lot of more questions that I'd love to ask about what we can learn from each other's experiences and I hope I'll get the chance at the conference. If you have any feedback or comments on the episode, please share them on Twitter or Facebook. The links are in the show notes and it'd be great if you could share the podcast with your network and give us a rating on your player of choice. If you want to help us defend everyone's freedom often from religion, then please consider joining at secularism.org.uk. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.